welcome to the second season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each week I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Erica Slutsky. Erica is a singer, actor, and writer whose performance credits include Camino Real at Columbia Stages and Gilbert and Sullivan's Princess Ida with Village Light Opera Group. She has also taught voice and various instruments at rock camps in New York and Chicago, and she holds an MFA in writing for the stage and screen from Northwestern University. We're going to talk today about the films of Todd Graff, Camp, Band Slam, and Joyful Noise, and how they work as musical theater. We have today with us our guest Erica Slutsky, and uh, we're going to get started with our get to know our guest questions. Um, so, what was your first experience with a musical? I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, mm-hmm. and we had this dinner theater called The Crown Uptown. Um, it's no longer there, but they brought in actors from New York, and mm-hmm. I remember seeing shows there when I was a kid. So mm-hmm. between that and the hash browns, I think I vividly remember that. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of shows did they bring there? Classic musicals, mm-hmm. like all the Golden Age shows like Sound of Music, Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they started doing like Next to Normal by the time they closed. Oh, wow. So that was my mom's first experience seeing Next to Normal, and I honestly wish I could have been there to see her reaction. Yeah. What is the last great musical you saw? Honestly, I think it's the last musical musical I saw, The Prom, on oh, Broadway. Yeah. I would say that, first of all, I love the fact that the humor is very like broad and like the type of humor I grew up with, mm-hmm. like SCTV and old Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Like it's very based in pastiche. They have two songs that like refer to Godspell, and having been in that show growing up, uh-huh. I was like, my sides were aching by the end of it. Like it's such sticky. Jewish New York humor. Yeah. And at the same time, the songs are just, I've been a fan of Beglin and Sklar since The Wedding Singer. And it's like a pop show, but the songs function just unbelievably well. I also think that in terms of representation, just mm-hmm. seeing a queer female character right. who isn't a stereotype, who isn't just a part of the scenery. And don't get me wrong, I loved Fun Home. Um, I think because I saw Fun Home just at a low point in my life Mm -hmm. it took a while for that show to really like reach me in a substantive way but with the prom I felt like if I had seen the show when I was about 15 or 16 I would have felt seen what older or classic show did you recently see for the first time and what was your experience with it oh wow um so a while back I think last when it first opened I saw Fiddler on the Roof at the Volkspiel Mm -hmm. Yiddish theater And for me, it was very cathartic because I have seen that movie a zillion times Mm -hmm. growing up. Um, I was in that show Mm -hmm. and I knew it verbatim. Like even watching it, I had forgotten the entire show, but then suddenly I remembered every single word. Yeah. And it was very weird watching it in 2018 because I had never seen a live production. Yeah. Or at least like a full live production. And... It was weird seeing it in 2018 with all the stuff about anti-Semitism and socialism and knowing what my ancestors, because I'm Russian, knowing what they went through 
and then watching this very hyper-realistic but also very minimalist production that was very rooted in Jewish culture. Yeah. It was like, I again, being in Wichita and doing a production where I encountered the lion's share of anti-Semitic slurs from the cast and crew. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, admittedly, this was the Fiddler that I needed to see when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Or at least it's the Fiddler I needed to see now because I was old enough to really understand the political stuff and just the whole, like, the fact that this is an important show. Yeah. There's a reason it's, a like, a widely acknowledged classic. Yeah. Oh, I loved that production. Yeah. That, um, the Yiddish, it's all in Yiddish for those who don't know it. I have seen Fiddler a number of times on stage, like, a uh, national tour when I was a kid and, like, the revival in 2004. Yeah, the revival a few years ago with um, Danny Burstein. And so I've seen like plus the movie a lot. But I so I've seen it a lot, but this I this was just like I felt it was the best fiddler I I had ever seen. It just felt so like real. Just like the Yiddish I think brought out the fact that it's just the authenticity of it. To have a production where it's like even if you're not Jewish working on it, like it by nature of having Yiddish be the language, like you have to commit to it, like being very specifically Jewish. Who is your favorite hero and villain character? All right, in the musical. Um, my favorite hero was kind of a cliched answer. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna say Elphaba. Mm-hmm. I unapologetically love Wicked. Oh, I love it too. <laughs> There's no apology that are ever needed for. I know. That show. It's the future classic, I guess. I remember seeing Wicked when I was in college mm-hmm. and just falling in love. And I think seeing Elphaba, it was like, someday I have to play that role. Like, mm-hmm. And it wasn't even just that. It was this feeling of the character has such a clear motivation. Mm-hmm. She has ideals. She is just, for me, it felt like I was seeing myself on stage or at least this yeah. very idealized fairy tale version. I think as far as my favorite villain, this was a tough one because... All of my favorite musicals, the villain is an abstract concept. Mm-hmm. Like in Pippin, yeah. the villain is this expectation that your life is going to be greater than it actually is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when the bad guy is your own personal demon or something that is preventing you from getting what you want, and then it turns out to be the one thing that you never realized, and this could be a ton of different musicals, like a lot of small human interesty musicals. Yeah. That's kind of my jam. Is there a musical, one you saw recently, or an older one, that you feel changed you or your life in some way? It's this show called Striking 12. Oh, yeah, I love Striking and 12. And I saw it at one of the worst periods of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in my early 20s. I was kind of between going to grad school and mm-hmm. accepting that I had to be an administrative assistant forever. Mm-hmm. And I went to see this show because I had heard so many great things about, oh, yeah, it's by a band. They yeah. went to NYU. It was like that lightning in a bottle moment of, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And it was weird. I mean, if you don't know Striking 12, it's a musical written by this band called Groove Lily. They have since broken up. Yeah. And um, the three members are Brendan sings and plays keyboards, Val sings and plays electric violin, and um, Jean plays drums and sings. And it's a musical based on The Little Match Girl, but it's also kind of a meta-commentary on seasonal affective disorder and depression. Mm -hmm. And for me, it hit hard um, because it's about someone who feels that he's wasted his life 
and I had felt that way, but also I think it took me a few years to eventually bite the bullet and learn an instrument and start writing my own songs. Oh, great. Um, so we're going to turn to our topic, which Ooh. is the films of Todd Graff. I'm super excited to talk about this, but I think we haven't yet focused uh, episodes specifically on something that's, you know, solely on film. Mm-hmm. So, but these are all musicals. So, in in their they're kind of quasi musicals. Yeah, very in their way. So, we're gonna kind of talk about that and what that means and how that kind of relates to the you know more traditional you know book musicals we see or jukebox musicals we see on stage. So yeah, well first let's start with just uh, who is Todd Graff? What are these films that he made? And uh, you give a little background on that. I mean, Todd Graff is a guy who contains multitudes. He got a Tony nomination for one of his first major Broadway roles in Baby and he mm-hmm. was a performer for many years. And then he moved into writing plays and ultimately writing and directing films. Uh, Mm -hmm. He got into Sundance where Paul Thomas Anderson was his mentor. And Camp was a movie that was kind of his labor of love. But he basically decided to take the knowledge that he had accrued as a musical theater performer Mm -hmm. and then apply that to film. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe he'll do a stage musical because I know that Camp was originally workshopped as if it was a stage musical. Oh, interesting. And they hired theater-trained actors. I think they were mostly cold from AMDA at that point. Mm -hmm. But he kind of was going to do it as a stage musical, but ultimately film just seemed like a better medium, and he had already kind of had his entree point into film Mm -hmm. um, when one of his plays was adapted into a Bette Midler movie. So, uh, used people. He had incredible mentors. The Mm -hmm. list of people who did consulting and advising and script doctor work on Band Slam is staggering. Um, Arthur Lawrence, Mm. who, you know, writer of Gypsy and tons, uh, West Side Story, tons of other musicals. Uh, Peter Mark Jacobson, who created The Nanny. Mm. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, John August, who wrote the um, Charlie's Angels and a bunch of Hollywood movies. Scott Frank, who wrote Out of Sight. Paul Thomas Anderson owes so much to Robert Altman, and you see the Anderson-Altman influence Mm -hmm. in Todd Graff's films, the way that people speak, the way that a shot is set up, the way that music is integrated into the narrative, especially, which is like a huge, huge thing for both Altman and Anderson. But Graff has really only had three major films, and it's interesting, too, just as far as the song selection process and how he wrote those songs into the narrative, Mm -hmm. um, because it informs his work so much like you hear so many interviews with filmmakers where they write around a specific song and then try like hell to get the rights to that song right um because they need it for their movie and sometimes it's prohibitively expensive what blows my mind is that camp had a lot of expensive songs that he bookmarked for the film mm-hmm. they spent less than a hundred thousand dollars on song rights mm. and they pursued a song from the rolling stones and got it for like 250 dollars wow and there is a buzzfeed oral history on camp that i actually learned that tidbit from i highly recommend reading it it's great supplementary reading to this episode because i don't think i could even begin to cover you know how important the song selection is to these films and how effectively they all work yeah so in camp i know like he like some of the songs are musical theater Mm -hmm. songs and some of them are original songs yeah written for the the movie on the one hand you have how shall i see you through my tears and i'm still here and all of these songs that are from shows and work specifically in the context of that show Mm -hmm. and you don't have to have seen like the gospel at colonis to know 
how this song functions in the show and then in the narrative and then as a meta show in the narrative. Yeah. But then you have songs like The Want of a Nail, which is a Todd Rundgren deep cut. It was a duet that he did with Bobby Womack. Hmm. And it's such an obscure song, but it's basically these kids' theme song. It's a song about disappointment and bitterness, but it's super upbeat. Hmm. It's like, wow, you blew my mind, Todd Kraft. <laughs> um, but it got me into Todd Rundgren. Like, and also... I can't downplay the fact that he chose a lot of songs for the soundtrack that served a background purpose mm-hmm. that just worked perfectly. Like, yeah. if this was the gateway drug to get me into the replacements, it worked. <laughs> and that's the thing. There's kind of this assumption that theater kids only listen to theater music. No, theater kids contain multitudes. Yeah. Like, Todd Graff only got better at introducing these songs and incorporating them into the films. Like, mm-hmm. even with Joyful Noise, where the music was prohibitively expensive. I mean, Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson. Mm. Um, Maybe I'm Amazed, like one of the most expensive songs of all time. And then Yeah by Usher, but with the lyrics rewritten to fit these characters. Mm. And yet somehow it completely works. And also like the idea of diegetic and non-diegetic, like uh, film school talk here. Diegetic means a performance within the story. Mm -hmm. And then non-diegetic is functioning within the story. And the characters sing as the characters within the moment. It's it, diegetic basically means it's a part of the story, but then non-diegetic, oh, they hear it in their head, or mm-hmm. it's a dream sequence or something. And I know I'm probably botching the definition of this. <laughs> in musicals, diegetic yeah. is like something that's like already in the the world that they're in. Yeah. Like, um, like if you have a scene and there's like a song playing on the radio that's, that's... in the that's music that's happening on the stage. And that's the thing thing. about Graf. Most of these songs are performances. Like one of the biggest complaints I heard about Mamma Mia was that Super Trooper was a in-performance, like it was a in-universe performance of the song. Mm. But at the same time, it's like, well, the characters are a band. They're reuniting. Having them be an ABBA cover band is a great way to introduce the songs of ABBA within that world. But then the other songs, like Mamma Mia, that serves a purpose in the storyline. I feel like with Todd Graf, most of the songs are Super Troopers, but the lyrics still apply to these characters and the yeah. growth that they're going through and their arc. That's kind of his ethos that he makes movies about the kooks and the weirdos. I know in camp that's definitely like a plot point in Oh yeah. In the that that they are that they're dealing with the fact that they're weirdos. There were a couple of things that his movies touch on and I think why I relate to them on such a deep level is that they cover the disappointment. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing is Camp, it's a movie about kids who have found their tribe. They're a bunch of misfits and weirdos. Yeah. And it is kind of a, like he's admitted, it's a sugar-coated version of this. This isn't fame. Right. These characters don't deal with that crushing rejection. But yeah. at the same time, you see bullying, you see infighting, you see right. characters saying petty things to each other. And that does happen among groups of weirdos. He doesn't cast the first choice for any mm-hmm. role necessarily. He doesn't look for clean-cut pretty yeah. blonde size zero types he looks for kids with zits like mm-hmm. he found robin de jesus and yeah. told him to not wear makeup because mm-hmm. he wanted him to be more authentic yeah. um i believe jeremy jordan was an understudy in rock of ages mm-hmm. and he saw him on the night he went on for the lead and said i want that guy in my movie i don't care if you've never heard of him yeah we are putting the second understudy for the lead as the lead in joyful noise mm. and Bandslam, the kid who played the lead, auditioned for a minor character, and he had never acted. I think he had minimal acting experience. Yeah. 
and he ended up casting him because he sa- he seemed like an authentic kid. Yeah, well, because I guess usually the authentic kids aren't cast very much, so they yeah. don't have the experience. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, Band Slam has a mix of authentic kids and professionals, and you can't right. really tell the difference. Mm-hmm. They The biggest thing for Band Slam was that he looked for kids who could actually play the instruments, mm-hmm. because he's played in bands before. Mm-hmm. Like, Kraft started out playing in bands, and if you've ever been in a band, you know, he wanted that dynamic. And he wanted kids who were actually authentically that way. So we had all of the kids who came to the open call. They learned the song Walking on the Moon by the Police. Mm-hmm. And that was basically the litmus test to see if they could handle playing live in a movie. Let's talk about um, how the songs in each film are functioning. Like mm-hmm. in camp, I feel like... Um, a lot of them are part of the performances yeah. that they're Yeah, but doing. they serve another motive. Like, mm-hmm. they tell us more about the characters. They tell us more about what they have to overcome. And in a lot of moments, it is an overcoming moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it's very ultra-specific. Like, it speaks to that experience. I'll, I'll say that the scene where they talk about representation, where somebody says that, you know, I don't want my younger brother to be in Fiddler on the Roof because he's black. It doesn't represent him. Yeah. That seemed prophetic yeah. in 2003. Well, that conversation wasn't happening in 2003, but it it's happening should have been. now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, even the moment with, um, I mean, there's the moment where Fritzy poisons <laughs> her co-star and then takes over, and it's this great comic relief moment, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it serves this function for the character. We get to know a little more about her, but even then, it was kind of like Todd Graff saying, look, when I was in camp, we did crazy stuff. We did yeah. Follies, and these kids are 12. Yeah. We did Dream Girls, and all of these kids are white. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like, you know, that's your experience. And if you can yeah. take that hyper-specific part of it, I mean, it was very weird, too. Like, I went to the camp in uh-huh. real life, and I, I mean, I did Cabaret, and I was about 16 at the time, mm-hmm. but I didn't really understand the show what's funny about it is that they're not doing yeah <laughs> appropriate shows and that... even that it's the shows that they like like you see these yeah. kids in the bus singing follies yeah and that was, this I is the song that. that they relate to yeah that was hilarious when i saw it in 2003 i didn't know the song so i didn't get the joke yeah, and now I that was, i do i mean i was a big sondheim person <laughs> through high school so when i saw that it was just like oh yeah whoa <laughs> like mm. This is hilarious because, like, I would like very few people at that age around me knew Sondheim yeah. that well. Maybe Into the Woods, but like that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, so to see like a whole bus full of kids singing that song together was just—it just was a great way to kind of establish like this is who these are the characters right. we're dealing with. This is the group of people that we're dealing with in like a very humorous way and i give him a lot of credit for nailing the tone for having these musical numbers and then having the whole spirit and humor and the dialogue scenes mm-hmm. reflect that tone that it doesn't feel too jarring yeah i feel like if the movie was too grounded in reality or if it wasn't grounded enough he stroke a perfect balance between mm-hmm. wacky humor but also keeping these characters very realistic and having them have definable traits that yeah let's face it are still relatable like the fact that Michael can't attend his own prom because he attends in drag and then his yeah. friends rallying around him, it is like, it's this heartening moment and it's something that you don't really see often in yeah. movies for that audience. Um, 
And it's weird because the studio wanted him to change them to Trekkies, not theater kids. And <laughs> now it's like, oh, well, if it's about theater kids, yeah, go hog wild. Right, right. People love The Greatest Showman now, you know. Yeah, Glee. Glee. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's interesting, too, watching it again and, like, the like the dynamics between the kids are so, especially, like, the sexual dynamics are Absolutely. so, like, not what I'm used people are used to seeing I guess mm-hmm. in those in, in teen movies even that deal with queer characters and in Band Slam it's kind of the same deal like you have this character who was formerly the head cheerleader Queen Bee yeah and then ends up at the bottom of the social ladder and she you know because she was in a band with the you know top quarterback guy mm-hmm. and you know the golden boy and he broke up the band you know, mm-hmm. that he didn't want her in the band. Yeah. And it, for me, just having been the girl in the band so many times, <laughs> it was an uncomfortable subject, but it's like, well, we've seen that dynamic play out just even if you haven't been in a band. Yeah. It's such a hyper-specific thing. Like kids, you know, teenagers, it's hard to write teenagers when you're very removed from that experience. Yeah. But there's something about that that feels weirdly authentic. Mm-hmm. And again, the song choices really inform that. Like that song, The Want of a Nail, just to go back to it, mm-hmm. it is an FU of a song. It's this loaded song about how angry they are and how dreams don't always pan out. Yeah, when do they sing that? At the, the end of the movie. It's the big finale. Uh... And it's done as this big glam number where they're all dolled up and they're doing choreography. Mm-hmm. But the lyrics are like the bitterest it's such a perfect choice and in Joyful Noise it's it's interesting too I think people kind of dismiss Joyful Noise because it's similar to a lot of other movies it's very similar to Sister Act 2 uh-huh. and when you see you know it's similar to Pitch Perfect like it actually has a very similar twist uh, okay. to the first Pitch Perfect movie and mm-hmm. I feel like my brain kind of gets them confused <laughs> like which one was the one where they were ringers and which was the one where they were high schoolers mm-hmm. but um but Joyful Noise is also like a very specific, like it's about a very specific town in Georgia and it's about a very specific group of people in a specific community mm-hmm. that I give Todd Graff a lot of credit for at least writing very distinctive dialogue and having fully fleshed out characters. Yeah. I don't know if he wrote these roles specifically for the actors, mm-hmm. but again, a lot of people like, and it's weird because a lot of people have mentioned like the tonal shifts in joyful noise like how they go from singing usher one minute to having wacky comedy about somebody who sleeps with men and then they die Mm -hmm. and to having really grounded stuff about like the iraq war it's weird but i i gather that it was kind of a difficult movie to get made Mm because graf originally wrote it about a jewish choir and i don't know if that that change maybe had a hand in the movie feeling as uneven as it does mm-hmm. but at the same time when you work in the industry and you get an idea of how groupthink and studios work and the types of politics that inform how the sausage ultimately gets made yeah. ultimately it's amazing to me that band slam and camp and even joyful noise turned out as smooth as they are and yeah. i think the song choices had a lot to do with that because again they could have just function, you know, they could have served the same function as Super Trooper. It could have just been a scene where they reunite the band and they're performing for the first time. Right. They're including Sophie in it. But I think with the specific lyrical choices and the musical choices, like, it's just, 
it clicks together yeah. and it adds a little something extra that I don't think the studio necessarily noticed. Mm-hmm. But I think for the people who speak that lingua franca, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I get it. Yeah. You know? Well, let's talk about kind of language. Yeah. Um, in the, in movie, in film mm-hmm. versus theater, I guess. So it's with these movies that, and then maybe other kind of musical movies where you're dealing with the language of theater plus the language of film. Absolutely. Um, and while these movies weren't first uh, stage musicals, they're still kind of dealing if in mm-hmm. a theater language as well. Um, like, what would you say are, I guess, some examples of like theater and film language coming together? The song cues specifically, mm-hmm. like the fact that they do use them, like going back to the fiddler on the roof scene, that cut, mm-hmm. it it's, has such a huge impact and it lands for the mm-hmm. most part. But I also think that, again, he knows how to ease into a musical number. Yeah. And for me, at least, watching these movies in retrospect, they probably couldn't have worked as stage musicals because a lot of the dialogue is very Paul Thomas Anderson and Robert Altman. It's very enclosed spaces. Yeah. And these are characters who are in restaurants or they're in bedrooms and they're mm-hmm. having very specific conversations to that environment yeah and they're acting a certain way like especially with kids kids are always self-conscious like they're always monitoring their behavior they're obsessive and for the most part these are the types of kids that he's drawn to those are the stories that he wants to hear Mm -hmm. but at the same time if it was done on stage it would have to be a big scene like even in the prom there's a scene in a restaurant where it's just an intimate conversation yeah. And it feels arena big. Like, yeah. it feels huge. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about, especially thinking about oh, yeah. taking movies and then turning them into musicals, which is happening a lot, and just like... Oh, yeah, yeah. Which ones understand that vocabulary switch and which ones don't. <laughs> yeah, and even with, like, the TV, the live musicals, yeah. you see, oh, wow, it plays very differently on television. Yeah. Um. And when you don't have that audience to play off of, right. I feel like Todd film, Todd's films are very claustrophobic, too. Mm. Like, yeah. it's, again, it's that whole Robert Altman thing of just kind of, and Soderbergh does it a lot, too, but having kind of this uncomfortably close feeling that the characters are not aware, like, they're not aware of the camera, yeah. but these are moments that wouldn't necessarily be caught on camera. Like, right. you have to have those authentic reactions And you have to have this authentic arc. Um, And for the most part, they do work. Like, I don't think, even in Joyful Noise, which, you know, centers around a gospel singing competition where they do big medleys and they have big hair and Mm -hmm. it's all super, like, having grown up in the Midwest and knowing that culture, it's like, it's super big, but they still manage to work that groundedness and those character arcs into the performances. Yeah. Like, they just decide, we're going to be ourselves. Like, we're not yeah. going to be artificial at all, but we're still going to do this version of, yeah, where we change the lyrics to be about <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Um, but for me, at least, I feel like the musical numbers do kind of have a bigness to them, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are kind of intimate. Like, even in Bandslam, when they're just practicing and jamming together and getting yeah. a feel for that... I think he did want that to be authentic and for it to feel like these kids were playing it for the first time. Let's do our, our deep dive into camp. Yes. How shall I see you through my tears? Do we talk about that one? 
I don't think so. Which is the which opening one is song? That? Okay, the and first song from Gospel at Colonus. Oh, and okay. It kind of establishes the world of the movie. Yeah, like it's saying they're doing this show. They're musical theater kids, and then we see all of the kids in their natural habitat. We see Ellen saying that she's not going to prom because she doesn't have a date. Mm-hmm. Michael getting kicked out of the prom and then being, you know, right. beaten, uh, for lack of a better term. And then um, Vlad doing the monologue from Boogie Nights, which is wonderfully full circle given that Paul Thomas Anderson was Todd Groff's mentor and had a hand in mm-hmm. helping advise on the script. Um, but again, it tells us all we need to know about these characters yeah. and the fact that it's a song about overcoming hardship, mm-hmm. that it is a very, very ultra-specific song. Graff was very insistent on putting it in the movie. They were almost going to cut it at the last minute. But if they hadn't had that song and they hadn't had that moment, I don't think it would have... I mean, that's the thing. You have to have a strong opening. Yeah. Like, you have to get the audience hooked and you have to, you know, you have to cram as much information as you can within a small space. Um, So I give him a lot of credit for using the medium of film and especially cuts and flashbacks to really, really achieve that. And again, picking that song, it's like the perfect marriage... The first shot we see is Sasha Allen's face. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, what are we in for? And then seeing everyone performing in this number in outside, it's like, oh, wow. This this is going to be something. It's interesting also that choice of song yeah. because um, it's from a musical that even a lot of like musical theater kids don't know. Yeah. So it's kind of like... It's an unfamiliar song. They don't. Most people don't know what musical that's from. If it's from a and, musical at all. And what I like about that is that it kind of personalizes struggle. Like these characters have struggles, and they're kind of first world problemy. But mm-hmm. at the same time, sometimes it is a real struggle, and this is their way of communicating that struggle. Yeah, it's a way of heightening it and amplifying it. And again, it doesn't have to be too harsh of a truth to swallow. Like, again, this is a movie for teenagers. So what is the next song we want to talk about, Ooh. I guess? Um, oh, Wild Horses, I think. Oh, when does that... When it's Vlad's talk? audition. The moment where they perk up and they're like, ooh, street boy. Right. And <laughs> I think it's also just it's yeah. so hilarious how pointed they are in that. Or... I did want to mention mm-hmm. Century Plant, just because I've, I've been thinking a lot about that sequence in particular mm-hmm. since seeing the movie again. Um, Century Plant is, it's one of the songs in the musical, within a musical, The Children's Crusade, that Mm -hmm. Bert Hanley wrote, and it's supposed to say where he is and what he's accomplished. And it's interesting because that song was a pre-existing song. It was by the singer-songwriter named Victoria Williams. Mm -hmm. And I knew who she was um, because she had MS. And in the 90s, one of my favorite bands at the time, Soul Asylum, was on a benefit album for her. Mm. It sounds like it could be from a musical, Hmm. but Graff mindfully wrote that knowing that it worked within the context of the story. It sounds like something that could have been from like hair Hmm. and it tells a very specific story. And it's interesting how they played around with the orchestrations because the orchestration is very different from the Victoria Williams version. It sounds more like a show tune. It's more full, like Tim Weil who did the orchestrations for Rent Mm -hmm. was the music director for the film. Yeah. And he like he managed to make even the score sound like musical theater. Hmm. It's interesting yeah. because like this could have seemed like a team soap opera, but then you have like these weird underscoring moments. Like I'm one of those. I think as a composer, I pay a lot of attention to the score in a film more yeah. than the writing. And 
I notice that the score tells you a lot about who these characters are and how they view the world. Mm-hmm. And the fact that these characters view the world as a musical specifically, or at least yeah. that's their escape. This is their one chance right. to get away from their home lives, which are not as forgiving. And to find people who encourage them, I feel like Century Plant was kind of that bonding moment. That's when the the uh, Vlad discovers the um, the score. The score. The, there's a a musical theater writer who's uh, working at the camp Bird that Hanley. summer. Yeah. And it's interesting because the guy who plays him, Don Dixon, he's not an actor, but he produced a lot of REM seminal albums. So yeah. Todd Graff's music tastes tend to lean toward '80s college rock. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of the Wonder stuff, Paul Westerberg. Um, I think, um, and a lot of that REM type. You know, Victoria Williams, obviously. She's, mm-hmm. I think she was a contemporary of REM. But somebody who was a sonic architect of that style, it's like, yeah, why didn't they make a musical? Mm-hmm. And Todd Rundgren, I actually found this out because I just bought the album that The Wand of a Nail was on. Most of those songs were written for a musical that never got off the ground. And you can tell. Hmm. Like when you hear songs out of the context of a musical, it's like, okay, how does this function in the story? Yeah. But it's pretty easy to tell when a song was written for a musical and when, you know, if it wasn't. But that being said... That being said, it's interesting that he picked Don Dixon like mm-hmm. over an actor to play yeah. the musical theater writer. He's like uh, kind of like a wa- washed up uh, writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's um, drinking a lot and Vlad goes to his uh, where he's staying and he's completely the he's completely passed out on the bed. Yeah. Um, and he sees this um, sheet music for the uh, something he's writing and he takes it photocopies it like has everybody perform it and um, the uh, uh, what's his name Bert yeah Bert uh, comes in while they're singing it um, and he at first it's like it looks like it's kind of painful for him in a way but and he like goes out and then like but then he comes back in and starts playing with them. It's interesting because Bert starts out like he has the one thing that stuck out in my mind, like of all the stuff that I forgot from the movie, and the one thing that I remembered was that speech where he says, It'll lead to a lifetime of bitterness and waitressing and mm-hmm. the pursuit of collecting original cast recordings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really like Yeah, lays he's it on bitter. Thick. Yeah. He's drunk and bitter and he tells these kids that uh, they don't have a future in musical theater. Yeah. But don't major in musical theater, kids. <laughs> um, or don't, yeah, don't pursue it. Don't. It's a speech I've definitely heard in real life, I will say that. Mm-hmm. But admittedly, it's, I think in most cases, it's extremely rare. Yeah. But that's just what his experience has been, and it's believable. But then it's like, this is the moment where he puts down the veil and says, hey, I'm a musical theater kid, too. Mm-hmm. Like, he remembers why he did this in the first place, and yeah. it's that profound shift. But also, I will say that, again, I think this is Todd Graff having played in bands with other Broadway actors creeping in there and saying, we need that moment. Like, Mm -hmm. when you're in a band and it clicks, it's like, yes, we did it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's really. And now we got to do it a million times over again. (laughs) Yeah, when he comes in and adds Mm -hmm. that, like, he kind of comes in and plays, uh, like, double piano. Oh, yeah. the, The pianist, and he is playing the high part there. It's like... It's like, wow, that adds yeah. so much. It was already, like, really working just with the kids doing it, and then that, like, elevates it to, mm-hmm. like, a new 
like a new place. So yeah. it's a really nice moment. Going to back to what's Anna Kendrick's character's name again? Fritzy. Fritzy. Just her another moment of her also um, her doing uh, ladies who lunch. As was yeah. this was like an audition song, I think. Oh, and the song uh, at the end with yeah. the the girl who and I forget this. Here's where name. I stand. Yeah. Yeah. She is like before she goes on stage, she sees her parents. Yes. At her, you know, because it's the end of the summer show or whatever, and they're there. And uh, she's had her jaw <laughs> wired yeah. shut the whole summer. The parents wanted her to lose weight. Right. And again, having come from a family where they did send me to camp specifically to lose weight, even though it wasn't a weight loss camp, mm-hmm. that hit very hard for me. Because mm-hmm. um, they constantly fat shame her. Yeah. They tell her that she needs to lose weight. Yes. And there's no specific reason given. It's just them indulging that whim. And at the end, when she gets the wires off and sings, it's supposed to be this moment where the parents realize she doesn't need to be thin. She has talent. Right. And that's what we should be focusing on. But at the same time, and this, again, this is maybe me reading a little too much into it. There's kind of this message that maybe the parents don't understand and they never will. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I feel it landed, at least how I read into it. Again, maybe this is just my own personal experience having been in that position and yeah you know seen it happen for the most part it typically doesn't end with wow you're amazing right right and that's typically how it ends in film and television yeah we've seen it a million times on glee yeah but that being said it's interesting that the parents are so extreme that they have her jaw ride trip but again that's kind of the surreal humor right turkey lurkey time uh-huh. i feel like uh, it's interesting too because so Personal story here, my parents are huge into Burt Backrack. Uh-huh. He's their favorite songwriter. That's what I grew up listening to. Yeah. And his music is very show tune but I didn't find out. Like, they, it's weird because I saw a local production of Promises, Promises, and I knew that show. Yeah. I think most people my age who saw Camp in 2003, they didn't know that show. Yeah. And time just kind of forgot about it because it was very 60s and very yeah. Burt Backrack. But having grown up with that cast album and then seeing it fully realized and being like, that's what it's supposed to look like? This is awesome! (laughs) Um, It was weird seeing that because I remembered that album and I immediately went to Tower Records and bought the whole album and wore it out. Yeah. Um, But it's weird that, like, it's kind of supposed to offer a break from the action Mm -hmm. and show what the kids are capable of and show their performance. But it's like, of all the songs that they pick, they pick Turkey Lurkey Time from Promises, (laughs) Promises. And it was such a brilliant choice. Yeah. As that's the showstopper right there. Let's move on to our Why Is This So Good section. Um, So we're going to talk about the song Someone to Fall Back On Mm -hmm. from... Uh, the film Band Slam, which we've been talking about throughout. Um, so yeah, why did you pick this song? So Band Slam came out in about 2009. And at the time, I had been very interested in Jason Robert Brown. And I had his solo album, Wearing Someone Else's Clothes. Mm-hmm. Like, I was hardcore into him at the time. And when I saw Band Slam, it was kind of the perfect marriage of all my interests. But there's this very defining moment in the movie where, um, I don't remember the name of the character, but Ali Michalka's character Mm -hmm. um, performs a song that she wrote about her absentee father. Mm. And it's someone to fall back on. I did not realize that it was on Jason Robert Brown's solo album and that it's a very different, like, it's a different orchestration. 
it was probably not written about an absentee father. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a song that could apply just as much to a romantic relationship as a familial one. Mm-hmm. And the language is so specific as far as that emotional context and how this person relates to who they're singing about that it's weird that not only is the song recontextualized to fit the narrative and be the song that a 16 or so year old girl writes it about her father who's never around and who didn't care for her yeah but well he did care for her but it's somebody who she has a fraught relationship with and then to realize i know that song wait a minute and it's weird to hear it like a Jason Robert Brown song, which is full of jazz chords and open voicings and as many notes as possible. But I can stand behind and be someone to fall back on. comedy you're bruised and beaten down and I'm the one who's looking for a favor still and have it done as a you know my sister derogatorily calls it chick rock Mm -hmm. to have it done as a chick rock song that is based around three or four recognizable chords that has a very strong bass line that's usually the scale that the song is written in and then to, you know, in a pounding drum beat, to hear that Jason Robert Brown and Chick Rock shouldn't go together, but this is the language of these characters. They're not going to be singing show tunes. They're 16 year old kids. They're the kid, you know, that's more like the kid who I was, not the kid from camp. serves as kind of this moment where the band finally clicks and when he does the Paul Thomas Anderson pan Mm. out when they're finally realizing the song and playing it together it's like this is a big moment for her because she's finally disclosing this personal truth about herself yeah but the band is finally gelling as a band this is the song that pretty much makes the entire film and tells us everything we need to know about the band but it ends up providing the brunt of conflict and it kind of summarizes the how the conflict reaches ahead. Mm-hmm. Like, this song doesn't have to play in context of a musical. I don't know if Jason wrote it for a musical or if it was just a standalone. Right. But it could work either way. And frankly, even these lyrics, it's like, again, it's a punch to the gut. Mm-hmm. It's this character admitting that there, you know, I'm not the best you could have, but I will be the best you can have. Even these internal rhymes, comedy and honestly, which is not a perfect rhyme, right. but it scans exactly the same way, and they both mean very different things. Reading into it, it's just like this, like it hits hard. It's a general enough lyric that it could fit like different situations, but then wherever you put it, it's 
becomes very specific. And I think because the character holds back her emotions and she doesn't, like, again, she's a character who suffered a bunch of huge traumas. She's going to hold back. Mm -hmm. And when she does finally expose that wound and says, I'm going to use this language, this these lyrics to explain what my situation is and why I've kept silent, they could just show the band rehearsing it and it would work perfectly. But they have her sitting behind the piano at first. Take a stand or hold my ground You never see any scars or wounds Had to walk on coals, I won't walk on she's trying to prove to him I mean I may not be the head cheerleader anymore but I am a person worthy of love and because her father is dying it takes on a whole new meaning because mm. she wants to rectify this relationship as much as possible before he passes away it's this character's statement of purpose it's her saying this is what I have to struggle with this yeah. is how I relate to my father and this could be my way of getting through to him so I'm not going to spoil the end right but it only makes the disappointment e hit even harder. to our final section, cool. Something Wonderful, where we just talk about anything uh, that we've seen recently or something we're looking forward to in the world of musical theater that we want to shout out. I think the thing I'm looking forward to most is kind of a weird one, um, the Fiasco Theater, Merrily We Roll oh, Along. Because yeah. I have been following the Fiasco Theater for some time. Mm -hmm. They have a free training initiative. They're always doing intriguing, groundbreaking work. Yeah. And... I feel like this might be the perfect marriage of show and company just because mm -hmm. I'm so excited to see what they're going to do with it and what yeah. messages they're going to find. Sondheim has been working with them. And, oh, wow. Um, I, I mean, I'll, hopefully I'll get to see it. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. Please write to us at scenetosong at gmail.com at any time with a comment or question about an episode, musical theater, or if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast. Scene to Song is now on Twitter at Scene Song. Follow us there as well as on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. And be sure to rate this podcast on iTunes, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.